Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society, where we discuss challenging cases, interesting hot topics, and many other areas relevant to our field. Now, before we start, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. My name is David Werho, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. I'm also a member of the PCICS Connections Committee. Today, I have the opportunity to interview Aaron DeWitt from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. At the PCICS meeting in Miami this past December, he presented his work on assessing long-term and short-term outcomes of patients who had interventional lymphatic procedures at CHOP. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining me. Thanks, David. So talk to me a little bit about the lymphatic program at CHOP. So for several years now, uh, we've been getting patients from all over the country and all over the world who have uh, lymphatic abnormalities. Uh, the majority of our kids have congenital heart disease. Um, a lot of kids have Fontans, and we can treat a number of conditions, including chylothorax, ascites, plastic bronchitis, protein-losing enteropathy. And uh, the study that I presented looked specifically at plastic bronchitis. What were your findings for our audience? We've been doing plastic bronchitis interventions for years, which um, basically involves uh, embolizing lymphatic channels that dump lymphatic fluid into uh, the bronchi. And we really weren't sure um, what the long-term outcomes were, and we really weren't sure like how the kids did in, in when they were in the CICU, which is obviously an important thing that I was interested in. So in, in the CICU, um, most uh, got extubated pretty quickly. Um, many had hypotension, which I suspected, and up to a fifth of them actually needed uh, pressor support um, during their time in the ICU. Uh, many complained of abdominal pain, a uh, few had some GI bleed, and there were some kids uh, with some major complications, like I think the total was four or five out of the 70, uh, which included stroke, cardiac arrest, and death. And then some of the long-term stuff that we found was that uh, kids uh, sometimes needed to come back for a repeat intervention, but when we talked to parents, uh, casting frequency went down dramatically, uh, quality of life indicators, physical activity indicators that were reported by parents uh, were all better, and only in a two or three out of those, I think, 50 uh, people we were able to contact, uh, only two or three re reported worse outcomes. So we were. I was uh, very pleased to see that uh, for the most part, we were really uh, making kids better. At the meeting, one of the moderators asked the audience to raise their hands if they were if they had the capability to do any of these lymphatic procedures at their centers. And obviously, there was really not a lot of hand raising going on. And so, for those of us who don't take care of these patients, I think it'd be really interesting if you could sort of explain what the things you think of in the post-procedure period are as far as like how are you managing these kids in the ICU? Um, so that's a good question. Um, you know, there, there are some uh, special considerations for this population uh, compared to the, our, our general CICU population. So 
you know, one is, you know, they're getting a cath, and how many kids do you get post-cath you put in an art line? Not many. Um, but these kids, we found it was helpful to have an arterial line. Um, otherwise, for hemodynamics, I think we're taught to give fluids uh, however much, and then you start inotropic support. Like, I honestly think I get, I, I permit like five cc's per kilogram of fluid, and then as I start an inotrope, because if you just keep giving these kids fluids, um, the lymphatic flow has to kind of reroute, and that's usually through the belly. And if you give a lot of fluid, you can get ascites. If you have ascites, you can lead to abdominal compartment syndrome, um, and it can really uh, set off a big spiral. So um, I think that careful fluid management is paramount. And, you know, we don't put in central lines in these kids, though, because they're really, it's a very inflammatory procoagulant state to have this lymphatic disease. So we try to avoid those as much as we can. And so it's a hard balance when kids have some hypotension and maybe need inotropic support, but then avoiding central lines. Um, and then you can't anticoagulate them because you're poking needles into bellies and with anticoagulation, you have bleeding. So uh, it's a very difficult balance. Um, other sp special considerations, I'd say the having a low you know, being very careful with ascites. I think putting uh, tubes in early to evacuate that um, is probably better than letting kids get into full renal failure and then putting tubes in. And uh, for plastic bronchitis, uh, you know, these usually casts do get better, but you just have to be vigilant that there may be continued casting. We uh, treat all of these kids with antibiotics because you're um, puncturing abdominal visci getting through to the lymphatics, and um, although our sepsis is low, we do prophylax, and that may be limiting it. Um, and as we've gotten better, we've poked less, and I think the uh, inflammatory SIRS sepsis-like response has gotten better, I think, over time. And how long before you start nutrition in these kids? In terms of IV nutrition, we don't have central axis. We don't, we're not, and I, as I mentioned, we are not very aggressive with fluid resuscitation. In terms of enteral nutrition, we kind of let them guide things. Um, we don't force feed them. With the poking of the belly uh, and the engorgement of having this new fluid kind of getting rerouted through the belly, uh, there is a post-operative ileus for quite some time. So we kind of let them run the show. And actually, return to feeding is, at least subjectively, what keeps them from get going forward. So we, we try not to push them very hard, but if they're if they're giving cues that they want to eat something, then by all means. But usually they have very quiet bowel sounds and they're not hungry, maybe even vomiting. And then they stop vomiting, then their bowel sounds come back, and then they drink, and then they want to eat, and it's a continuum. But we, um, we don't do, we do low fat feeds for at the very least two weeks. And when you're managing a patient who had a lymphatic procedure for plastic bronchitis, do you manage them or consider things differently um, than patients who had the procedure for some other disease process like PLE or et cetera? I, when I tend to group the different diagnoses, um, how I manage them is usually on how sick the rest of their heart and lungs are. So if they, um, if they have good hemodynamics, um, and it's kind of inexplicable why they have chylothorax or PLE or plastic bronchitis. Usually I am a little bit more cavalier with them and let them do more, and usually they feel better. 
kids with bad hemodynamics who maybe were trying to help their PLE or their plastic bronchitis to make them a transplant candidate or something, like those kids are often very sick after the procedure and I'm much more careful, watch them much more like a hawk. So I, um, plastic bronchitis, I would say no. PLE a little bit because the way that we have to get at the channels, they're channels that come from the liver uh, towards the duodenum and we do some poking of the pancreas in that and they can get a pancreatitis. Um, but for plastic bronchitis, I would, and not, not, nothing too special. Based on your work and your findings, what is your vision for the future of this patient population? That's a really good question. I think we have probably the largest experience in this population, and we're still talking about pretty small numbers. I presented uh, at another session about our chylothorax population. That was about, we have a publication of about 30 patients. Um, this looked at 70 patients with plastic bronchitis, um, and this is over, you know, five years experience or something like that. So it's, it's really small numbers. I think in my ideal world, um, and you know, I get a lot of second opinions and we review these cases, I think in an ideal world, I don't know that we'd have many other centers doing these interventions. But before you can figure out interventions, coming all the way to Philadelphia, is a big ordeal. And you know, sometimes we do imaging and we find that they're not a candidate for intervention. So I think in an ideal world, big cardiac centers, small cardiac centers would kind of get learned up on the best way to do this, the imaging, uh, and we'd be able to have good high quality images, review that, and then make our recommendations. And if that's to come to CHOP then for intervention, that'd be great. But it's, it's hard to you know, have a family come to CHOP for imaging and just be say, yeah, we can't, we can't help you. Um, that's, that's really hard. It's not fair to the referring center. It's not f fair to the family. It's not fair to the patient. It's not fair to CHOP. And so it seems like there's a huge infrastructure and care team that really is necessary to take care of these patients, obviously. And so being a referral center, if there's someone out there listening who has a patient who they think might be a candidate or might be benefited by this intervention, how do they go about contacting your center to figure out how to do the right imaging and those types of things? Uh, probably the best way is chop cardiac referral at email to chop.edu and they can they they know how to start getting us the information that we need and then uh, we review these cases uh, once a week we put a priority on kids who are inpatient so that we can get them the care that they need quickly and um, we can start figuring it out. Uh, Yoav Dori uh, often gets contacted directly, um, but yeah, no, if you get it to our team, we, uh, we have a great team. Aaron Pinto, our nurse practitioner, puts together really great uh, summaries and we go over it and we're able to make recommendations. And obviously this is all off-label, so... <laughs> it's... It's entirely off-label, and you know we're we're learning a lot. Um, I'm curious if you know four years. I've been doing this for four years now. I'm really curious to see what it's going to be like for in in four years because uh, we've made dramatic changes on how we approach things in just my short time. So uh, it's an, it's exciting. And obviously, these being very very sick patients who don't have a lot of options, it's really important the work that you guys are doing. Thank you. Can I just ask, I'm sure it depends a little bit on the acuity of the patient as well as on what else is going on and how busy the caseload is, but in general, what's like 
an anticipated turnaround time if someone was sending a second opinion or a referral to CHOP for this? With a really acute patient, we get them there as quickly as possible. Um, someone who is stable as an inpatient or an outpatient, then it depends. There's kind of two things that happen. We look for availability in the schedule and then two, insurance preauthorization. And so depending on if it's a in-state Medicaid, that can be a little bit more complicated and they have to go through all the process of making sure no one else in that state can do that. Um, but it's often uh, two to four weeks, I would say. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming to speak to us about this. Thanks, David. It's, it was an honor. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to look for other episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or subscribe to get all the latest episodes as they're released. Once again, find out more at our website, pcics.org. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.